Welcome to the Rise Network podcast show, a podcast dedicated to help you reach your dream lifestyle through investing in real estate. We're going to be sitting down with new, intermediate, and experienced investors to talk all about real estate and how it has changed their lives. If you're looking to scale your portfolio or even just get into real estate investing, you're in the right place. Make sure to tune in. Hello, everyone. You are listening to the Rise Real Estate Investing Podcast with your host, Austin Ye and... And Mayu. What's going on, Austin? What are you up to, man? Microphone doing. Is it better? Like, I've been having some issues with my troops. <laughs> it's, it's, it's better now than it was when we were recording uh, an episode with the guest. So, um, Apologies for uh, any, any uh, bad audio uh, to our audience. Um, <laughs> I am in the midst of trying to get a new mic now, so we'll, we'll figure this out. Um, but everything on my end is going well. So we hired a disposition manager who started today. So that is going to be quite time consuming because we're just start chatting a bit offline. The amount of training that goes into hiring a new individual, especially someone who might not necessarily have past real estate experience. So now you got to educate things on like real estate investing, understanding the different strategies, ARVs, max allowable offers, comparable uh, assignments, APS. There's a lot, a lot of things to to get through, but I'm very excited because what that means is that over time, there's going to be less workload for me. And I wouldn't say the near future, but hopefully the next two or three months. Yeah. And even once you have these training manuals and stuff like that documented, it's going to be a lot easier to onboard, you know, future people as well as you guys grow your team. Right. So that's, that's dope. Um, How are things on the real estate investing side? I think you said you were looking at some properties or is it too soon to talk about those? Yeah. uh, The real estate investing side. Let me think. Um, we're doing a refi on our six unit right now. So six I, in Sudbury? yeah, I'll, I'll get the numbers next Friday. That's when we're going to get the appraisal done. Our appraisal is already done and ordered, but we don't know what the final figure is. It's going to take about a week or so to get that finished. Um, our eight unit is going well. It should be wrapped up by the end of this month. Again, we turned over five of the units. This was from last year. Um, we turned over five of the units. The renos are almost done there. And we might turn over one more unit. So that's going to be six units of eight, which is not bad, actually, for a yeah, year. And in terms of other acquisitions right now, we are acquiring probably two more properties, um, just small singles in Sault Ste. Marie. So very, very cheap properties, uh, good areas of Sault Ste. Marie. But again, like I want to keep real estate simple and easy. Mm. Um, so it might be, yeah, I'm just, I'm just purchasing like any like smaller multi singles that I can turn around in three months with very minimal effort. Like just, yeah, it's just super cookie cutter stuff. It reduces your market risk as well, right? Just given the market that we're in, you never really know. But if you're in and out within like three months, like, yeah, you'll be fine. Yeah. And, and I'm, I'm marketing, I'm going to be marketing in Thunder Bay and other areas right now. Um, mostly areas that have a decent population size, but might not have as much competition in terms of wholesalers. So that way, I think that generally in those areas, you can probably lock the best sort of deals under market value. It uh, doesn't necessarily mean it's going to be the greatest appreciation, but I think from a percentage discount to market value, I find that those areas generally do better because it's not a million wholesalers jumping on the deals. For sure. <laughs> and what, what have you been up to? Um, I don't even know, man. Like these days are getting crazy. It's coming out of a long weekend. I think the Tuesdays are just like an absolute mess, but um, on my end, we just exited our, the first of six units that, uh, that were signed off closed on Friday. That was a little bit of a nightmare. Close. So the, the buyer was just being super 
uptight. Let's call it that. Let's just leave it at that. I'm not going too, too in-depth on the details there. Uh, but first of six units is gone. Um, from a investing perspective, we're refinancing the sevenplex out in New Brunswick. Uh, that one, the value came in. We were doing it with RBC and then they limited us on loan to value for, for no reason other than um, they didn't like the equity take out more than what was needed to pay off the private. Um, mm-hmm. So limiting us on that, but we might just switch it back to credit union and go for the higher equity takeout. Um, and then that leaves the eightplex, which we're going to probably start refinancing in, I guess we're in March almost, right? But we're going to be refinancing that probably in March. Um, with this one, we would have paid back both of the privates that we used to acquire both buildings. So um, the next building, we kind of just take our time with that. And then a lot of the focus is, is going into the resort from an investing perspective, right? Um, just, you know, getting that to close and, and getting that nearly done. Uh, hospitality is a tough industry, man. You try to get private financing for a hospitality related industry. It is super challenging, especially in today's market. A lot of people, I think, just being burnt from from COVID in the past year or two. Right. But overall, you know, it's it's good. It's it's growing. I, I think, uh, you know, we just walked out of an episode with Sarah, Sarah Edder, and, and she gave me a lot to think about, I think, in terms of, you know, how the business grows and using fun, fun uh, flips and other kind of revenue to ultimately funnel into the real estate investing business, right? I guess people like us who are looking for the next thing, it's, you know, our mind kind of goes all over the place. And at some point or another, we all get guilty of the chasing the silver, what is it, a silver object or shiny object? Shiny shiny object, object yeah, 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 yeah. Even at any level, right? Because you, then what, right before you're at that peak of leveling up, you try to figure out what the next step is and you might dab your toe in all of them. Whereas, you know, you should stay committed and focused into one. So. I totally get where you're coming from, man. Um, but let's not enough about us. Let's jump into today's episode. We have a great, fantastic guest, the one and only Sarah Larby. Been uh, it's it's about time we have her on here. Today's a fantastic episode. We get into Sarah's journey into real estate. We get into some of the big projects she's doing. Sarah's actually living, I guess I would say, the ideal lifestyle that we would like to live, right? <laughs> where she's getting to enjoy her time off. Um, of real estate, but still do fun and big projects. So we get into things like a resort that she's planning out, adults only, her trade-off from smaller projects that she began with into bigger developments. So she has two developments going on at the moment as well. This is an amazing podcast. Like we just go into all of these different cool little things that we don't really talk about in this episode. I know Mayu and I had a fantastic time and we sure learned a lot. Hope you guys enjoy this episode. If you do, make sure to like, subscribe, do whatever you can to support this podcast five-star rating on iTunes. And without further ado, let's get into it. Hello, everyone. We are joined with a very special guest. And I always say very special, but this time it's a name you're probably familiar with, Sarah Larby. Sarah, how's everything going? I am doing awesome. Thanks for bringing me on the show and congratulations, guys, on your podcast. Yeah, it's about time. I think I think this year we're, we're focusing on making sure we take down a lot of big names. Uh, we did a lot of newer investors earlier on. And I think you were just a name where we were like, how the heck did we not have Sarah on here yet? So it's about time. Uh, so Sarah, I think obviously myself and Austin know a lot about yourself and your history, but for, I guess, our listeners that might not, uh, why don't you give everyone kind of a quick background on yourself, how you got started and uh, yeah, we'll break it down from there. Awesome. So I got started because I knew that I wanted to retire early and uh, 
ultimately bought my first real estate investment property in 2013. Um, that was like the cheapest house I could afford by then. Realized that, you know, I, I got into landlording more of a buy and hold to, to start with. I uh, didn't really know that there was much else other than, you know, the stuff I see on TV or the stuff that I used to see on TV with, you know, you're either flipping or you're you're hearing something about a landlord on the news. And, uh, <laughs> but, but that's how we got started with, with some buy and hold. And uh, I guess fast forward a little bit, the buy and holds didn't make as much sense over the years. Uh, got into the birth strategy, uh, started doing that, did some conversions, then, you know, got into the short term, the midterm rentals to, uh, to get the cash flow up. And then I retired from my JOB. October of 2020. So that was about seven years of being invested in the real estate industry and, and having properties. And since then, I am now working on three development projects. Wow, that's a lot. Yeah, there's, there's going to be a ton to break down there. <laughs> I think what people, our audience in particular, likes to appreciate is how advanced investors got started early in their journey before we, we're going to get into some of the things that you're doing now. But earlier on in your journey, you were doing some buy and holds. When did that light bulb? that you wanted to start burring and how did you transition from the buy and hold to burr? Because a lot of investors who've owned properties for a while, they still find that a challenging transition because now you got to get renovations, get good deals, understand the financing aspect. Why don't you walk us through how that journey was like for you? Yeah. I mean, I think it's just the real estate market became a little bit more competitive over the years and the prices that I was able to get things at originally had gone up. And in order to uh, stick to, you know, my, my original budget. Cause as we were getting started, we didn't have a whole lot of money. And so we bought, you know, like the bottom third of, of some of the markets in, in Brantford, Ontario back in the day. And, and, uh, you know, the houses needed more and more work. <laughs> and I think just by accident, um, got, you know, started with, uh, with some, you know, just small renos, you know, single family, just updating the kitchen, the flooring, the bathroom, the paint, that kind of stuff. Um, and then I think over the years, it just became even harder to do that. And so the burrs needed to go into, um, you know, creating two units or multi-units rather than just the single family burr. But I think it was just, uh, you know, you kind of have to evolve with the real estate market, even today. Like you look at today and people starting, I mean, you're really probably not cash flowing in the majority of areas with a single family anymore, unless you're maybe six or seven hours out. So it's about pivoting, right? You always have to pivot based on what's happening in the market, the, you know, the strategies, um, you know, you don't have to have one strategy that you need to stick to at, you know, every single point in your life, because at some point that strategy will no longer work or will no longer work in the way that you were doing it. And so it is important to pivot along the way. So I guess that, that leads us to a topic for new investors in today's market. I think the number one challenge that everyone has is a, how do you buy something in today's market? That's a burr. It sounds like almost like the properties that are burrable, like sell almost at like the same price sometimes as like after repair value it gets kind of ridiculous out there. So what are the strategies? Cause you also run a coaching program, I believe. Um, mm. And so what are the, some of the strategies that you're seeing that still work in today's market? I mean, I think conversions work really well, which is, a, which is a, you know, a way to burr by rent refinance repeats, but now you're probably, instead of just doing a two unit, maybe you're looking for something with a large yard that you can do an additional dwelling unit, you know, bill 108 in Ontario is an example. I can't speak of every single province, but just recently allowed for a third unit. And I, you know, there's rumors and there's talks that they're trying to, you know, make it so it's easier for people to do these conversions, even potentially up to four units. And so it's, uh, it, it's interesting to see, because I still think the Burr strategy works really well. The conversions work really well. I mean, what, you know, if you're even thinking outside the box and doing some commercial back to residential conversions, I know some people doing really well with that. 
Um, you know, obviously I got into land development because I had to pivot and I'm like, Hey, you know what? It's harder to find deals. And I also, because you're, you mentioned it, I do some coaching. I don't want to be, I don't want to be fighting for the same deals as like people that I'm coaching. Like it's their deals. I'll, I'll always give it to them first. But so I just started, you know, doing some, some developments, found some off-market land. Well, one, one was off-market, one was on market and the other one as well. But, but essentially I, I think it's just a matter of pivoting. So I still think that like conversions work. Um, you might have to look a little further, right? So, you know, again, maybe three, four, five hours out of the GTA could be a better option too for the cash flow. If you have multifamily with an opportunity to add value, I think that can still work really well. And then, I, you know, recently I got into the midterm uh, rental markets. So it's kind of like that perfect sweet spot in between short term and long term, because obviously in provinces like this one in Ontario, uh, the uh, the Residential Tenancies Act and the, and the LTB isn't really so much in our favor. And so that, and then you look at, okay, the short-term rentals, which is essentially under 28 days, you know, there's there's issues around that. There's potential, you know, bylaws, There's uh, which, you know, I still do some short-term stuff, but um, that midterm, I still think it's like, A, it's untapped. I don't think it's as known and the government's not really looking at it right now. And you can, you know, again, I'm not an accountant, but it is a great way to not have to worry about the HST piece, which you do in short-term rentals. You don't really have to worry so much about, you know, all the laws against uh, or for the short-term rentals. So as long as you've got, you know, 28 or more days or 29 days or more, um, you know, I have, and it could even just be on Airbnb. I rent mine, uh, you know, to a lot of homeowners that are in between, you know, houses, or they're doing some renos and construction on theirs, and they kind of need a place to live for a couple months, uh, or executives, you know, in the company, I've, I've dealt with companies before where they send their executives from like BC or wherever to stay, and they've stayed for six months. So it just gives me more control. But I think ultimately, it also produces better cash flow in some markets that may not work otherwise. Mm-hmm. That's an interesting strategy. So just from my understanding, the midterm market is after 20, like, 28 days and beyond. So does that mean that they are protected by the LTB after that or no? So this is like, I think still a very new topic and a misconception and a myth, right? That if they're there Mm -hmm. for more than 28 days, then technically like, you know, they're going to be able to go to the LTB if if you want to kick them out. And there is some case law and you can, and again, I'm not a paralegal. So I would say, talk to my paralegal, but he gave me this information and he's evicted a lot of people that wouldn't leave. But essentially, there's this case law that was just recently done in December of 2020 that says that if it is on a platform like Airbnb and VRBO, it is not subject to the RTA. It is considered a commercial lease. So even if you're like two months, three months, four months, whatever, as long as you've got. So if someone doesn't leave, again, not a paralegal, but if someone doesn't leave, you have this case law. Andrew Chupet is his name, by the way. And you show the paper to the cops, you call the cops, and then you show them the, the booking on like VRBO or Airbnb. And then they'll, they'll remove them and you don't have to necessarily go through the hassle of waiting 12 months <laughs> or whatever to get out. So, and that is new, like that is new. And somebody had to go through the courts to fight it. And, you know, once you have the case law, it definitely helps. So, and I asked him, I'm like, how many people have you evicted successfully? And he's like, oh, I do it all the time. Uh, so Andrew Chubetta is his name. Wow. That's actually yeah. very good information. <laughs> yeah. I definitely thought it was naturally going to become uh, into a long-term rental. So I guess to get around it, not get around, but like, I guess what you're doing to get the medium term rentals is you're going through Airbnb and VRBO, but you're setting the minimum day rentals to like 28 days, I guess. So. Yeah. I mean, you could do it that way. I, I usually will do like a discount for like anything past 30 days to make it, um, you know, enticing for somebody to book longer stays. And again, not an accountant, but as long as your main 
um, goal for that property is not short term. Like if I have like one or two short terms that are not as long, um, it's not going to ruin everything, right? In terms of an HST piece. Um, again, just talk to your accountant, obviously, because it's still a bit of a gray zone. Um, however, I'll tell you, you know, you also have to be in the right area. Like I, I wouldn't do this in an area where there's a ton of tenants everywhere. Like the areas that I, I do this with other than cottages are, you know, areas where you do have the majority of people being homeowners and, you know, better school zones. And, you know, it's like maybe like a B plus or an A area that's a little bit more expensive um, that people do want to live in and that people are are going to, you know, likely want to stay in the same neighborhood if they're in between homes and, and whatnot. And that's what I've found. And I'll tell you the nice thing with a site like Airbnb or VRBO, and I predominantly just use Airbnb anyways, but you can see their prior ratings. And I don't allow anybody with no prior ratings unless I talk to them on the phone first and I know why they're staying. And usually it's something along the lines of, I've sold my house and I can actually verify it. And they've got another one. And, you know, there's, there's been, um, you know, I, I would just say my, my occupancy levels for, for the ones that I do have are very good. And so I like, you know, I'm closing on a, well, one of the developments that I'm building a townhouse, I bought one of the townhouses that's going to become a midterm rental as well. Like I, I'm actually pivoting from away from the long-term rental until I could see that, like, you know, we'll see what happens, but the RTA can improve a little bit. Um, I just don't, you know, I don't like the way that it's headed. So it does seem like a lot of investors now are moving towards the short-term rental or in your case, medium rental space. And I guess, is that essentially the main strategy that people are kind of forced to use to, to get to a period of, of decent cash flow? Like, you know, I, I think when we all kind of built out our portfolios, long-term rentals, they still cash flow. So we just focus on the birds, but it almost feels like now you have to burr and then build out a whole other business model on short-term or medium-term rental markets, right? And one thing to add on to that, Maya, as well, speaking of like the numbers, how do they differ from like your long-term rentals versus what you're getting from your medium stay? I know short-term is probably the highest, but it's probably the most active and pain in the ass to deal with as well. Yes. Yes. And no. I mean, as long as you've got like a few good people and feet on the street, you could probably, you know, make it work fairly seamlessly. But so a midterm perspective, I would just say, uh, so like, here's an example. So my Burlington uh, property has two units a basement and a top floor. And I basically get the same, I priced out the same per unit for either one. I would say the top unit usually gets booked first because people are like, oh, you know, something on the main floor before like versus a basement because a lot of Airbnbs are, are basement units or, or condos. But I would say, you know, it's it's between the 3,000 to 3,500 a month for each unit. So in comparison, you know, the basement, I'd probably get 20 or, you know, two grand or, or something along those lines for that, maybe a little bit less. And, you know, maybe 23, 24, 25, depending for the upper. So for just the peace of mind, and, and I, I actually, you know, I think it's less wear and tear if you have the right people. Mm. And, and I'll tell you, I, I went through Airbnb a couple of times for just like things that got damaged, like accidents and stuff like that. But, you know, it's nice that you can have a deposit. If there's something broken, you can hold the deposit. They're like pretty quick at paying you back. Or if there's like, you know, damage uh, above the deposit, it takes about three to four weeks to for them to assess it and then they give you your money back. So you're really not out of money versus like a long-term tenant that decides not to pay for 12 months gets out. And all of a sudden you've got like $10,000, $20,000 worth of damage that you've got to fix in between the, that tenant and the next one. You got to find where they live now and hunt them down. And usually 
You're just not collecting anything. <laughs> so Mayu and I actually have a professional tenant, unfortunately, in one of our properties. They paid yeah. rent for one month and stopped paying after oh, yeah. that. And we're like, damn, yeah. like we, uh, it, made, yeah. it made us really think about Airbnb. Um, but one thing that we didn't know, and maybe, maybe correct me if I'm wrong, this might be another myth or another misunderstanding on my end. With Airbnbs, generally, when you renovate them, it has to be to a much higher standard. So Mayu and I, the reason why we go long-term rental route is, is that we're not gutting places and we're going cosmetic but we actually tend to lean on the cheaper end of cosmetic as well, try to keep everything there. And they probably won't show fantastically well on Airbnb based on the renos we do. So when you speak, when, when you are setting up your Airbnbs or renoing projects, like, are you going for like a luxury and sort of product to get that high quality end consumer? No. So I'll tell you, I think it's, it's more important that it's, you know, the location and, and the design, like the, the furniture, the design, the amenities, like that's actually more important than, I don't know, like if you have Ikea cabinets or like custom cabinets, like my, my cabinets are from Ikea and they look amazing. And my contractor kind of like built them in so that they look like they're part, you know, custom, but they're Ikea cabinets. So I don't think you need to necessarily like spend twice as much on the renos. I think you just need to make sure that like, your furniture is nice. You've got like, you know, a good mattress, you've got like awesome amenities, um, whatever that is. I mean, you know, for the cottages, like if you've got a hot tub or, you know, a sauna that helps, but for your, you know, other midterm type of rentals, um, like I do coffee, I, you know, make sure that the kitchen is stocked. Um, all the furniture I, I get actually from Structube. I mean, you can get from different places, but I find like Structube was just easy to get everything from you know, pick your color palette. Like if you're going to buy furniture or get it off of the, you know, Kijiji or Facebook marketplace and you're trying to like mix and match them, it might not be as nice. Right. And like, if you don't have like nice bedding, it might, it might deter some people. So as long as like, I don't think the the actual renos are as important as everything else it has inside, if that makes sense. Yeah, no, that, that totally makes sense. Yeah, it does. I don't think our units are that bad often, but, um, <laughs> but I do think like a lot of the times, like, Honestly, like the luxury vinyl, and maybe it's just like, we're just like as investors, so played out with it, right? But like, I see the luxury vinyl plant gray and I'm like, ah, it's just like very like rental grade, like basic quality renovations, right? I have but, vinyl in my my uh, Airbnbs and it is still tenant proof. And yeah. I don't have to worry about it, like water or scratching or pets, like nails on there. Like, you know, it, it can still look really nice, even if it's not like the top of the, you know, like you're not, I'm not living in it regardless. You're still renovating rent it yeah yeah i guess yeah, i'm really furnishing, furnishing is really the key there right so yeah i'm really interested in this topic so like i'm pardon me if i'm beating a dead horse but like it's something that i'm hoping to maybe implement in my portfolio sarah you got my head spinning on different strategies <laughs> now what type of what type of um toiletries or like type <laughs> of um i don't know like condiments things of that like what are you giving these people when they come outside of just furniture yeah. like because they're staying for three let's say like three months or whatever, like, are you giving them just like Costco size coffee? Are you going in there and actually replenishing things as they need? Like, how does that look like? Not for midterm. So like for coffee, for example, like I used to work for a coffee company and, and so I, you know, I still have some options for, uh, for coffee, but it's uh, you could get like Starbucks coffee or like some different things. However, I will tell you, I don't think my place gets rented just because of the coffee, but you know, what I give them, I mean, I give them enough, you know, supplies. I don't think it needs to be the top of the toiletry. Like, it's just like, you know, like soap and shampoo, conditioner, uh, like obviously towels and bedding, like, you know, there's laundry. So I do like, um, you know, dryer sheets and laundry soap and like whatever you would use. But if they do run out, it's up to them to replenish. So like, there's a lot of people that are going to be 
that rent for, you know, 90 days. They're staying for hundred days right now. You know, what they have, if they need more, it's up to them to get it more, to get extra. What I will do is my cleaner will go in between before the next person goes. And then she kind of lets me know what we need more of. And then we restock that way, but there's no restocking in between, which is the nice part, right? Cause you're not doing it every couple of days or every four or five days, like you might with a short-term rental, you know, they're likely going to use, you know, all the toilet paper or whatever, but, but so what, you know? That sounds pretty good. Austin, you still have questions on the Airbnb? I feel like you were going to ask. No, no, I was just going to make a comment. Like logistically, it makes life much easier because with short-term rentals, you have to coordinate cleaners or have someone on your team logistically to coordinate cleaners going in and out. They need to see the calendar, like several bookings throughout the month. Over here, it's more so like you have a tenant or not a tenant, like an occupant, a guest that's staying for one or two months. So logistically, it just feels so much more easier and you're still taking advantage of that higher cash flow from um, mm-hmm. platforms like Airbnb. Yeah, no, I just wanted to make that comment there. Yeah, and I do have some short terms that I do. They're mostly just like recreational though. And, uh, but I will say, you know, like I think even just in terms of like managing, like you won't get as many, like you don't have to send as many messages, right? Cause like before they check in, you want to like, you know, send them a message and then on like the day after I usually send them a, like a, another message and you can automate this as well, but there's just not as much communication as well, because once they're in, you know, for, for the 60 days, 30 days, 90 days, whatever it is, like usually they don't need something. And if they do though, you know, once in a while, like the odd time they might message us, but, and ratings are super important. So they do want to leave the place nice and clean and and take care of it and, and be good guests as well so that they can get the rating that goes with it. So Sarah, have you like pivoted most of your portfolio now to the medium term rentals? Half of it is medium term. And I would say half of it is well, medium and short term. And then half of it is like still long term. I, I think it depends on what you've got and where they are. Right. So like if, if, you know, I would probably not take like a B minus area or C area and try to Airbnb those. I mean, you're probably going to get tenants that are being evicted, <laughs> you know, in, in those units. So I think it's still for the midterm anyways, I think it's still important to be you know, in an area that makes sense, whether it's close to a hospital or maybe a university where maybe the parents are visiting, um, you know, why are people going there? You probably don't want to be in the ghetto or the worst area of a city. And um, I don't think that people that are in between houses or doing some rentals to their house are really going to want to go into that neighborhood. So I still think the neighborhood piece, where it is, proximity to what else, right? Um, if it's close to the highway, that helps. If it's close to you know, restaurants or different things, I think that will help as well. But, um, you know, I, I would say, cause I've been doing this for about two years now, the majority of the people that have stayed, um, have been midterm and they've been people from that area as well. Uh, whether it's, they want to, you know, have their kids finish high school before they move They're in between houses. Um, it was literally in between houses. It was, there was companies that were renting it for their executives or it was renovations. So people don't want to be in the dust or, they were waiting for pre-construction. Like that's like literally like between, you know, all the, the, the different clients I've had, those are really the four reasons. And I will say in the very beginning of, of the pandemic, I did get a few people that were moving or uh, not moving, but they were quarantining there, which I, I don't care. Sure. That's two weeks, not, you know, it's more short term, but it got us through the, the bit, a bit of a lull in the beginning there when we weren't sure what was happening with the pandemic. Awesome. I, I kind of wanted to go into what you're doing today um, to hear the natural progression. So you were doing buy and holds, then we talked about burring. And then at what point did you start transitioning and how did you get involved in it? So when I left my nine to five job in October, I think that 
midterm and short-term stuff really helped as well. Um, and obviously the time in the market. And then I, I think I was just able to figure out what I really wanted to do. And I didn't have to do the next deal and the next deal and the next deal. And um, I hired a mentor with 30 plus years of experience. I think that's always important, right? You have different mentors for the different stages of your life. And, uh, and he's been developing um, and he had a ton of experience and on his team, he had a Terion certified builder. And, you know, and so I started learning and, you know, one of the things was trying to find a piece of property to, to implement and take action on what you learn because it's important to take action. And, uh, and so I just started calling around. So the first piece of property that I bought was in February of 2021. And, uh, and that was the intro essentially to the development piece, but called a, a realtor that had something else listed, uh, some raw land, and that was already sold. But she's like, you know what, I, there might be something coming up for sale and let me check with them to see if they're interested in selling. I know they had mentioned it a few months ago. So we ended up getting this piece of property probably for half price. Um, it was 385000 and uh, he had bought it the year prior. I don't think he actually made any money on it. It's just, it was his first deal. He was going to, you know, do something for himself. And then I think his, um, his partner, his wife decided that they would prefer to buy a cottage instead. So they're like what they wanted change. And so we bought it off market, but through the realtor um, that brought it to me, that was local. And then, you know, we were originally going to build, I think 12 or 14 unit, like a part, like um, multifamily to keep, but the, market has been doing so well. We're like, why don't we pivot a little bit and let's make them townhouses and let's pivot a little bit more and make them like two unit townhouses so we can sell them to investors and they can actually cash flow and they're good deals because a lot of, you know, a lot of builders, a lot of developers are building for the masses, for people, not necessarily for investors. And so I like, I, I don't love that. Right. I want to make sure that like, if I'm doing something there's, you know, an opportunity, especially with the, the reputation and, and, you know, the brand that I've built to be able to like help others um, get something that makes sense. But what happened with that one is I, you know, again, brand new, you can make so many mistakes and they're going to be much more costly. So I asked Harry to join and partner up on that property. So A, I can learn along the way and B, I'm not going to be making those expensive mistakes, but you know, we all bring something really cool at the table. I mean, he's has access to really inexpensive private money that he's had for a while, just, you know, from, from people that he knows. And then his partner, Joe is a, a Terion builder. So I'm like, okay, I'm in great hands. They've built a bunch of stuff in the area already. City knows them. And so I brought them into this deal. And so they're, you know, helping me. But what we did is that we pivoted and we sold, we made them to six, six separate townhouses that we sold in. Like, I think I sent an email in like 10 minutes. I had, 40 to 50 replies. So I'm like, okay, they're gone. I bought one, but we sold each of them for seven. I think it was seven eighty nine, And, uh, I think when they actually are going to be done, done, there's going to be another about a hundred grand of extra profit for the investors that bought in. And I bought, you know, I bought one of the units and, uh, you know, same price. So I think that's, that's fair. And uh, I'm going to turn those two units into midterms and I'm going to hold on to those and then, you know, in exchange, Harry had, uh, he has two pieces of land. We're actually going to take those. Uh, and so he's bringing me into that deal. And uh, we're actually going to do two eight plexes. They're going to be mixed use. And then in June, I really wanted to do this tiny home resort. I always wanted to do something different, something cool. And I think just because, you know, now I had more time on my hands that I was able to like, think bigger and, and, you know, take more risks in a sense. 
found this piece of land on MLS, negotiated a VTB with the seller. And uh, we're going to do a, a boutique upscale adults only resort. Phase one, like it's going to be a five-year project, but phase one, which, which is going to have, you know, the first three cottages is going to be ready this summer. Wow. <laughs> a lot, a lot to uncover there. My, Sean, you started, you want me to well, start? I, I want to I start with the first projects. I want to, I want to break that down. I just want to understand this. Okay. So, so six townhouses, um, each one, two units up and down, I'm assuming because townhouse, right? Probably. So you're selling with 789, which means you generate about 4.67, something in that ballpark, right? And you bought it for 350. Uh, what's the timeline to get essentially 12 units or six townhouses, depending on how you look at it. How long does that take to take it through to completion? And then I guess like without going, I'm sure you don't want to give like all your numbers, right? But like, what's like a, if, if someone else other than you guys, cause I know you guys have, you know, cheaper labor or not labor, um, private money costs and so on. But from a development perspective, what should an average Joe essentially factor in from a development cost perspective? Yeah. So there's, there's a lot of questions there. What, what I, so one of the things I will say is um, we have to change zoning back. Uh, which is probably going to take the longest part just because he had changed it from, because like he had, the, the seller had changed it from residential to commercial and then we were doing townhouses. So we're changing, we're changing it back and we're going to have addresses obviously for each town. Mm-hmm. Um, but we are still expecting to be done. So we're going to be in the ground likely in February, March. Uh, so just like in the next, you know, I don't know when this airs, but we'll probably be into the ground at that point. Um, but we're still expected to finish at the end of the year. So uh, 2022. You know, the pricing can definitely differ. I will, I will tell you that it's obviously different having a, a builder on your team just because they've got a, a ton of experience, but B, a lot of connections to materials, to trades, their own trades. Yeah, I don't know exactly where we're going to end up from a price standpoint, but I, I will say there's probably going to be in the grand scheme of things when we're all done, maybe about a million five profit, you know, so I guess you can kind of work backwards, but it, it's cost per square foot obviously varies, especially as today, right? There's shortages and, and everything and, and the materials are more expensive, um, you know, and then you probably want to add your soft cost to that. But the best thing to do like to get started is, you know, if you find a planner, like a city planner or somebody that can help you, you know, and, and a builder that builds in that area, you'll likely have a good idea, but I wouldn't necessarily get into this project unless you have somebody like this on your team, especially to get started, or, you know, you've got, you've got a good team set up. What, like, you know, from a planner to a builder or they're doing it with you as a joint venture or whatever. Mm-hmm. Okay. And before I let you go, Austin, I want to ask one more question because you did mention the mentorship side, right? So I'm curious how you went about deciding, Hey, I wanted a new, uh, another mentor or, or I'm mm-hmm. sure you've had other mentors previously, but I'm curious how you went about deciding, okay, now's the time for a mentor. And yeah. did you decide you want, already wanted to do development and then you found your mentor or did you go about it the other way and just talk to a couple of people, saw what they were doing and then kind of decided based on that? I actually found my mentor by finding him originally on Instagram and invited him to be on my podcast. And like, this guy really knows what he's doing. <laughs> and then he spoke at the right club a few times. And like, I don't think he does this for a living, but I'm like, Hey, I, like I'm, I need somebody that's, you know, at that next level, um, that's doing, you know, bigger projects outside the box projects. And like, you know, he's the most successful in my opinion, investor that's still, you know, nobody knows. Right. And he's not like, super flashy, um, you know, worth millions and built it and, and is still actively doing it. And I think that's also the important piece, right? Is I don't want, like he's actively doing it and he's actively doing it in the areas that we're also building in. And funny enough, my cottage is like five minutes from this one building that he was restoring. And I was always like wondering, I'm like, this is a cool building. I wonder who owns that. And anyways, it ended up being him. So 
I, I just knew I, I didn't want to do the same stuff over and over. And I just needed somebody to take me to that next level. And I think the development seemed like, you know, a next option provided I had the right people to, to help me get there. And that's just kind of how, how it worked. And then it literally was just found the piece of land and all right, here we go. Let's go. <laughs> you know, so now we're in it. And then from there, it's just, okay, this, this works. This is good. This is, you know, a strategy that I, I like. And, and I think ultimately when you leave 40, 50 hours a week behind, you just have more time to actually think of what you want to do. And you can actually be selective in the projects that you want to do. Like I'm, I am not interested in having a hundred deals a year or doing, you know, 20, like I'd rather select certain projects that will do well. And I don't care if there's one or two projects a year. I'm, I'm happy with less because less is more time back for me. And I'm more about lifestyle than, you know, number of deals. Um, so the resort, I think is just going to be a fun project. Cause we're going to be doing retreats on it. We're going to like, I want to do like some like food festival markets and like, just like a bunch of different cool things. And, you know, I think that's the beauty of being in real estate is you can pivot and you can just, you know, you, you've got to have a good base of like properties. That's going to be your bread and butter. And then after that, I mean, you know, be selective. You don't have to keep going and forever, forever for what, right? Like your lifestyle is more important. Anyways, it is to be. No, 100% agree with you. So it's interesting. Some of the best mentors you really run across is just via networking. And like you were saying that you just connected with this individual, spoke with him a couple of times, saw him on Instagram, invited him over. It's like, oh, like I want you to be my mentor. But at the same time, you also showed that you had the hustle and dedication because with people like that, they're just not probably get asked a million times. So you really need to show that you're committed to it. Um, So that's amazing there. I want to get a better understanding of kind of the due diligence process of, so like, let's take your resort, for example, the one that you're planning out for the five-year project there. Mm -hmm. You saw this vacant land in MLS, like, like, how do you know what you're going to do with it? Like, cause I see vacant land all the time and nothing pops up in my head. I'm like, Oh, okay. (laughs) Not to the next one. You you know what I think? I think originally, so I had another piece of land selected and um, it was under contract and we were doing our due diligence and it was in a floodplain and the city, uh, there was a guy that had owned it for know, 50 years and, and he was the seller, but there was many things that were, um, you know, once we started doing some digging, realized a, there was a floodplain and B there was nothing that was going to be grandfathered in anyways, long story short, that one didn't work. But from there, and that, cause there was like little like trailers on it. I'm like, Oh, this could be like a tiny home resort. And like, I didn't even know I want to do a tiny home resort until I bought this other piece of land. I got really excited about it. And then I'm like, okay, we can't, like, we have to let it go because it just doesn't make sense and you can't build anything on it. So, you know, from there, I'm like, okay, let's do a resort. So I'm like, okay, what is the zoning that I need? And so I, I just went on MLS and like, it was on MLS and it was there probably for two months, but just typed in, you know, the, the zoning that I needed and, and took a look. And it was actually a resort 10 years ago. It was, it's just land right now, but it used to be a resort. So it saves a ton of time because you don't have to do any rezoning. You know, you don't have to do, uh, there's, there's a, you know, you basically just apply for the building permit from there. Uh, you know, we just have to make sure that it's not like in a floodplain or a protected area. Like some areas have, uh, Orca, for example, like you can't build anything in a, in a space or land, um, that is environmentally protected. Right. So you, you do want to do some, some due diligence uh, with that and then get it under contract, talk to the planner. Like the planner is also 
likely, you know, if you have a local planner, uh, a wealth of knowledge and like what can be done and what can't be done to that piece of land. Um, so then we got it under contract and negotiated a vendor take back because obviously land is a lot more difficult to acquire. And this was 1.1 million. So we did a VTB for 850 at 5% for two years. At least it gives us the ability to, you know, put something on there and, and create some value so we can refi. So that's essentially how that, that worked out. But it's, um, you know, I'll tell you, it's, it's going to be a long project because there's a lot of wooded areas that we have to get into just so we can put some cottages down the road. And, but it's, you know, I think it's going to be a fun project and, and I'm learning along the way, right. I don't have the answers today for everything, but it's, uh, you know, it's cool to see the pieces come together. Yeah, absolutely. So I, I think what, I think what you, all the, all the projects that you have right now are, are pretty freaking cool. So, um, I think the main question is, you know, on a financing side, right? Like, what does that look like? Cause I know you, you've talked about VTBs, I think on two of the projects, um, for the land, um, and then I'm sure development has private, but like for generally speaking, like what, you know, how do people finance this stuff and what does that look like? It's tough. So I am not a mortgage broker and I'll tell you the ones that we did here were either VTBs or it was private money. So, mm. I mean, you look, or there's one piece of land that we brought in to investors to close on, and then we give them a percentage of like the profits as an example. So you could, you can spin it however you want, you know, but I would say if you close on land, hundred percent, it's easier to get financing to do the construction, but it's expensive. Um, and that's why, you know, if you're buying some land, like chances are that there might be a VTB in the works that you can negotiate a lot easier than you would for residential, but it is expensive. Talk to a mortgage broker. If you, you know, land, you're probably going to have to, again, don't quote me on this, but it's probably 50% down, you know, and then financing it is going to be hard. And if you're financing something and then you need money to do the, the construction, you know, that can get very expensive and very complicated. So it's not impossible, but it's just a lot easier if you have private money or you bring in investors uh, to close on the land, you know, with, with cash for, uh, uh, you know, shares and profits or, or profit sharing. Mm-hmm. I guess for myself, like the reason why I have a hard time seeing opportunities like this, is I'm not a very creative guy. Uh, I like to have everything set in stone. So when I look at something, I'm like, I need to know exactly what's going to happen now. And if it anything diverges from that, I'm like, oh shit, like that, that's not what I'm anticipating. So, so from I will a pro- say development then is not a good strategy yeah. for somebody that <laughs> wants to know ahead of time. Like this is like the birth strategy. Like for me, I'm like, okay, this is going to take me four months. Like I'll be in and out, then I can refi. It is, it is so not like this with development. It's like the hurry up and wait game and like the waiting, you have no clue because it's sometimes it's, it's the city, right. That we're waiting on and, and just different people. Um, and so you don't have as much control. And so you do have to be able to like tolerate a little bit more uncertainty because it's a whole game of uncertainty. And then you have to know how, like, okay, so if, if you can't do this, but you can do this, like, how do you pivot? Right. And so I'll tell you when you're, when you're holding expensive money though, it's going to be a lot harder. So you do want to find a way to not have, you know, a very expensive construction, private money, but like maybe, you know, you bring in some investors or you bring in cheaper funds. If you can find cheaper funds. Mm-hmm. How does the pro formas look like for something like this? Like, are you spending days and weeks trying to create pro formas or is it just like, that's more secondary in, in the analysis side of things? It's more secondary, but see, so we had a meeting yesterday um, and I'll, I'll tell you a lot of it is in, in house. So like, you know, prices are different, but we're, we're creating, I think it was 
but something like 598 square feet or 500 and something square feet. So I can't remember exactly. It's going to be. Um, and so these are going to cost about 200 grand each to do. Um, and yeah, I guess your answer homes? to this. These hmm? are the tiny homes? Yeah. Like they're like, yeah, like almost 600 square feet for 200 grand. Um, and then there's, there's costs then for the septics and the wells and that kind of stuff. But, you know, we're probably going to be around the 2.3 all in with the three cottages and then everything ready for the, we're going to do nine cottages in total. Um, but, you know, looking at the rental and being conservative with the rental rates, you know, once we have nine cottages, it's almost a million dollars a year that I'm factoring in when I'm looking at like other resorts or other areas, figuring out the occupancy where it's, you know, it's about 900 um, K a year of gross income. Um, so again, it's not set in stone. This is like a project, not for the faint of heart, but it's a, it's a fun project. And like, I think actually it'll do really well. Um, but I think it will do really well because I also have the partner's and I have access to, I mean, you can't really build a whole lot for like 200 or 250. You just can't. And it sounds like you're going to be burying it at multiple points, right? Like I, I might be wrong about this, but it sounds like after you put the three tiny homes on it, it's now, I mean, even if you're all in it for 2.3 million, I don't know what it'd be worth, but you'll probably burn at that point, pay back your VTB, pay back some of your private and exactly. then move on to the next stage of development. Got it. And the 2.3 includes the land purchase. Yeah. Yeah. This is going to be interesting because I, I think it will do really well. Like I think even just one of them being able to bring almost a hundred thousand uh, a year conservatively, um, you know, and, uh, and I look at like a place like wander, you go to wander the resort. I don't know if you guys have heard of that, but they, they have, um, so we walked it and we've connected with them just cause they have a, a beautiful upscale resort in Prince Edward County and uh eight to nine hundred bucks a night which i looked at much lower just as conservative numbers and they are booked all year 90 percent occupancy and I, I was looking even at their calendar for 2023 and it's almost fully booked you know i'm connected with that girl there that helps a lot with the setup and everything like that i barely used you know 90 even for the summer months um, and i used more of a 50 percent occupancy for the rest and so i'm comfortable with the risk. It's never going to be hundred percent. This is not like a bird deal where like, you know, maybe your rentals are going to be like 10 or 20% more. This can go in many directions, but you know, you got to kind of just play with the pieces that you have and, and pivot if needed. Right. It's one of those moments, I guess, where you just take a leap of faith and it'll, you know, it should propel you significantly into the future. And I think what's cool about your strategy, because a lot of the resorts in Ontario, um, they're super old infrastructure that have been owned by the same builders or owners for like, you know, 10, 20, 30 years. Right. So I think you guys are going to have some new real estate and that's going to, I think, attract a lot more people to your resort and, you know, keep your maintenance and capex super low. Right. So I like that. It's a good development play. It's very interesting. I, I think you've, you know, gone through your journey about how you got started with the birds, the medium term rentals and developments. So we definitely covered a lot in this episode. Uh, usually at this point in the podcast, we like to ask your guests two questions. So the first is, uh, what are your goals like five years from now from a business uh, or personal life or, or whatever kind of investment strategy you want to talk about? Yeah. I mean, I actually have like probably like 20 goals, but um, <laughs> I'll tell you, you know, one of the things that um, are, are, is important to me is obviously I retired. I, I do want to retire about my spouse, um, you know, in the next year or two. And then I just want to be 
on my dock for six months out of the year. And, you know, in Costa Rica, I'm actually negotiating something in Costa Rica for a, a fourplex build with the builder. So we'll see what happens. Um, it's wow. currently ongoing right now, but it looks promising, um, you know, and, and be somewhere, you know, warm the rest of the year. And from there, I mean, you know, I think, I think the direction I would like to go into is, is just to be able to like, you know, share, not just real estate investing, you know, inspirational, um, stories of, of what I've done, but even just like, you know, things like my lifestyle, right. How can I help others create the lifestyle? Like I have a chef, I have, you know, like, even though, yes, I have all of these projects, like I don't work that much on the projects. Like I'm, you know, I pick and choose. I, I like doing podcasts. I might start doing a little YouTube show, um, you know, but I think it's important to be well-rounded and, and I'm not saying I have all the answers or anything like that, but if I can share some of the things that I have done with others and, you know, help them, you know, not necessarily create another nine to five job with real estate, but to like live their best life and their definition of success. Um, I think that's what I would like to do. Awesome. So I, okay. So Powerful answer. yeah, that was a really good answer. But, uh, the second question is for any newer or more experienced investors, like anyone really. Uh, what's the biggest risk that you see in today's market? I think right now, in the time of recording this, is the unknowns of our current government's dictator. Um, but no, but but the government and just what what they may you know or may not do to try to slow things down and slow down investors specifically. I don't fully trust this current government, and I think that at some point they're going to do something to try to to you know stop what's happening. Obviously we can't have price increases this, this much, but I also don't know if they fully really understand how it works and are they going to do something that is going to uh, be much worse? I think that's the risk right now. I mean, there's, there's risk to everything. There's risk to investing, but um, you know, I, I think we're kind of just all wondering what their next move is going to be and, and what that kind of effect is going to, to look like. Yeah, I totally agree with you. This is this is funny because this is the first time we actually had someone answer political risk. And I think that's the most obvious yeah. one in today's current climate. Um, Sarah, I really appreciate you jumping on in today's podcast. Your story has been super inspirational and you've genuinely changed the lives of many investors, including my own when I got started in my journey. So uh, appreciate everything you've done for the community. If people want to reach out to you, connect with you or hear more of your content, how could they do so? Uh, I am on Instagram, which is investor Sarah Larby. Or if they go to sarahlarby.com, they can go to the contacts me page and, and see what I'm up to. I, I do have a podcast, which is called Where Should I Invest? And the Right Club podcast, I do have two of them. Um, and if they are interested in, I'm doing a, a resort, we're going to cap it at 40 people, but there's still some tickets left depending on when you release this. At the resort, we're going to do a retreat that's going to be three days. It's going to be for entrepreneurs and investors with you know not only like great speakers, but we're going to have, you know, like boat cruises and food and drinks and everything's going to be all inclusive. Uh, and so I'm putting that together with my team for, uh, for August 9th to 11th. So anybody that is interested, I don't know if there'll be tickets left at that point in time or not. Um, but reach out if you want to come to the retreat at the resort. I guess we got to get those tickets out. Uh, not tickets, this episode out ASAP then. <laughs> the <laughs> links will be August. down below. I'm, I'm guessing it'll probably, there'll probably be some for like the next month and then they'll probably. Mm -hmm. So if you guys are listening to this, you gotta, you gotta book, book the tickets ASAP. All of the links are going to be down in the, um, in the show notes. So I was losing my mind. I was saying chat, like this is a live stream. It's in the show <laughs> notes below. Uh, make sure you guys like subscribe, do whatever you can to support this podcast. It brings great guests like Sarah. Also check out Sarah's podcast as well. 
Link in the show notes. And until next time, everyone, invest smarter and live better. Take care.